Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, podcast where we do things. We're talking about chapter 107. Philip is now a fashion designer. Okie dokie. Came a little bit out of nowhere, but it was good to see Philip, I don't know, do something well, do something, uh, I don't know, do something successfully. I am Norwegian says, I forgot to discuss the actual chapter yesterday. Philip's realization, oh, this is throwing back to yesterday's chapter, reminded me very much of the book of Ecclesiastes. It is one of the three wisdom books of the Old Testament concerning itself with the pointlessness of human travail. We will all die and be forgotten like we have already forgotten those who came before us. It goes over how the wise die as the fool and how wisdom just leads to sorrow either way. How the unjust might get ahead of the just seemingly at random. Or as Tolstoy summed up the book, all that is in the world, folly and wisdom and riches and poverty and mirth and grief, is vanity and vexation of spirit. Man dies and nothing is left of him. And that is stupid. My favorite wisdom book is the book of Job, though especially this reading. It's basically a man lamenting his life. What's this reading? Okay, there's a YouTube clip. <clears throat> oh, that my grief were true. Of by Alexander Scorby. Okay. It's basically a man lamenting his life, poetically arguing at God through three normies trying to convince Job that what God is doing is correct and just. But Job is having none of it. It's such a depressing book, but I can't stay away from it. Laura Weistich said, I like that Philip overcame his despair and immediately things started looking up. What if the book ends and Philip becomes a fashion designer, given up on being a doctor? Is it meant to parallel what happened with him with writing? Like, was is this kind of like, he didn't want to make it too close to home, so he just changed the art form from literature to, uh, you know, design work or painting? I wonder. I do wonder that. Uh... All right. I think it is time now to read the next chapter. 108. The winter passed. Now and then Philip went to the hospital, slinking in when it was late and there was little chance of meeting anyone he knew, to see whether there were letters for him. At Easter he received one from his uncle. He was surprised to hear from him, for the vicar of Blackstable had never written him more than half a dozen letters in his whole life and they were on business matters. Dear Philip, if you are thinking of taking a holiday soon and care to come down here, I shall be pleased to see you. I was very ill with my bronchitis in the winter, and Dr. Will Wigram never expected me to pull through. I have a wonderful constitution, and I made, thank God, a marvellous recovery. Yours affectionately, William Carey. The letter made Philip angry. How did his uncle think he was living? He did not even trouble to inquire. He might have starved for all that old man cared. But as he walked home, something struck him. He stopped under a lamp post and read the letter again. The handwriting had no longer the business-like firmness which had characterized it. It was larger and wavering. Perhaps the illness had shaken him more than he was willing to confess, and he sought in that formal note to express a yearning to see the only relation he had in the world. Philip wrote back that he would come down to Blackstable for a fortnight in July. The invitation was convenient, for he had not known what to do with his brief holiday. The Athelnys went hopping in September, but they could not then be spared, since during that month the autumn models were prepared. 
The rule of Lin's was that everyone must take a fortnight, whether he wanted it or not, and during that time, if he had nowhere to go, the assistant might sleep in his room, but he was not allowed food. A number had no friends with within reasonable distance of London, and to these the holidays was an awkward interval when they had to provide food out of their small wages and, with the whole day on their hands, had nothing to spend. Philip had not been out of London since his visit to Brighton with Mildred, now two years before, and he longed for fresh air and the silence of the sea. He thought of it with such a passionate desire all through May and June that when at length the time came for him to go, he was listless. On his last evening, when he talked with the buyer of one or two jobs he had to leave over, Mr. Sampson suddenly said to him, "'What wages have you been getting?' Six shillings. "'I don't think it's enough. I'll see that you're put up to twelve when you come back.' "'Thank you very much,' smiled Philip. "'I'm beginning to want some new clothes badly. "'If you stick to your work and don't go larking about with the girls like what some of them do, "'I'll look after you, Carrie. Mind you, you've got a lot to learn.' But you are promising, I'll say that for you, you're promising, and I'll see that you get a pound a week as soon as you deserve it. Philip wondered if he, how long he would have to wait for that. Two years? He was startled at the change in his uncle when he had seen him. When last he had seen him, he was a stout man, <coughs> excuse me, who held himself upright, clean-shaven with a round, sensual face, but he had fallen in strangely, his skin was yellow, there were great bags under his eyes, and he was bent and old. He had grown a beard during his last illness, and he walked very slowly. I'm not at my best today, he said when Philip, having just arrived, was sitting with him in the dining room. The heat upsets me. Philip, asking after the affairs of the parish, looked at him and wondered how much longer he could last. A hot summer would finish him. Philip noticed how thin his hands were. They trembled. It meant so much to Philip. If he died that summer, he could go back to the hospital at the beginning of the winter session. His heart leapt at the thought of returning to more, no more to Lynn's. At dinner, the vicar sat humped up on his chair, and the housekeeper, who had been with him since his wife's death, said, "'Shall Mr. Philip carve, sir?' The old man, who had been about to do so from disinclination to confess his weakness, seemed glad at the first suggestion to relinquish the attempt. "'You've got a very good appetite,' said Philip. "'Oh, yes, I always eat well, but I'm thinner than, you, than when you were last year.' I'm glad to be thinner. I didn't like being so fat. Dr. Wigram thinks I'm all the better for be being thinner than I was. When dinner was over, the housekeeper brought him some medicine. Show the prescription to Master Philip, he said. He's a doctor too. I'd like him to see what he thinks, if it's all right. I told Dr. Wigram that you now you're studying to be a doctor, he ought to make a reduction in his charges. It's dreadful, the bills I've had to pay. He came every day for two months, and he charges five shillings a visit. It's a lot of money, isn't it? He comes twice a week still. I'm going to tell him he needn't come any more. I'll send for him if I want him. He looked at Philip eagerly while he read the prescriptions. They were narcotics. There were two of them, and one of one was a medicine which the vicar explained he was to use only if his neuritis grew unendurable. I'm very careful, he said. I don't want to get into the opium habit. He did not mention his nephew's affairs, Philip fancied that it was by way of precaution in case he asked for money, that his uncle kept dwelling on the financial calls upon him. He had spent so much on the doctor and so much more on the chemist. While he was ill, they had had to have a fire every day in his bedroom, and now on Sunday he needed a carriage to go to church in the evening as well as in the morning. Philip felt angrily inclined to say he need not be afraid. He was not going to borrow from him, but he held his tongue. 
It seemed to him that everything had left the old man now but two things, pleasure in his food and a grasping desire for money. It was a hideous old age. In the afternoon, Dr. Wigram came, and after the visit, Philip walked with him to the garden gate. How do you think he is, said Philip. Dr. Wigram was more anxious not to do wrong than to do right, and he never hazarded a definition, a definite opinion, if he could help it. He had practised at Blackstable for five and thirty years. He had the reputation of being very safe, and now of his patients thought it much better that a doctor should be safe than clever. There was a new man in Blackstable. He had been settled there for ten years, but they still looked upon him as an interloper, and he was said to be very clever, but he had not much practice among the better people, because no one really knew anything about him. Oh, he's as well as can be expected, said Dr. Wigram, in answer to Philip's inquiry. He Has he got anything seriously the matter with him? Well, Philip, your uncle is no longer a young man, said the doctor with a cautious little smile, which suggested that after all the vicar of Blackstable was not an old man either. He seems to think his heart's in a bad way. I am not satisfied with his heart, hazarded the doctor. I think he should be careful, very careful. On the tip of Philip's tongue was the question, how much longer can he live? He was afraid it would shock. In these matters, a periphrase was demanded by the decorum of life, but as he asked another question instead, it flashed through him that the doctor must be accustomed to the impatience of a sick man's relatives. He must see through their sympathetic expressions. Philip, with a faint smile at his own hypocrisy, cast down his eyes. I suppose he's in no immediate danger. This was the kind of question the doctor hated. If you said a patient couldn't live another month, the family prepared itself for a bereavement, and if then the patient lived on... They visited the medical attendant with their resentment. They felt it having tormented themselves before it was necessary. On the other hand, if you said the patient might live a year, and he died in a week, the family said you didn't know your business. They thought of all the affection they would have lavished on the defunct if they had known the end was so near. Dr. Rigram made the gesture of washing his hands. I don't think there's any grave risk, so long as he remains as he is. He ventured at last, but, on the other hand, we mustn't forget that he's no longer a young man, and while the machine is wearing out, if he gets over the hot weather, I don't see why he shouldn't get on very comfortably till the winter, and then, if the winter does not bother him too much, well, I don't see why anything should happen. Philip went back to the dining room where his uncle was sitting, with his skull cap and a crochet shawl over his shoulders, he looked grotesque. His eyes had been fixed on the door, and they rested on Philip's face as he entered. Philip saw that his uncle had been waiting anxiously for his return. Well, what did he say about me? Philip understood suddenly that the old man was frightened of dying. It made Philip a little ashamed, so that he looked away involuntarily. He was always embarrassed by the weakness of human nature. He says he thinks you're much better, said Philip. A gleam of delight came into his uncle's eyes. I've got a wonderful constitution, he said. What else did he say? He added suspiciously. Philip smirked. He said that if you take care of yourself, there's no reason why you shouldn't live to be a hundred. I don't know that I can expect to do that, but I don't see why I shouldn't see eighty. My mother lived till she was eighty-four. There was a little table by the side of Mr. Carey's chair, and on it were a Bible and a large volume of the common prayer from which for so many years he had been accustomed to read to his household. He stretched out now his shaking hand and took his Bible. Those old patriarchs lived to a jolly good old age, didn't they? He said with a queer little laugh in which Philip read a sort of timid appeal. The old man clung to life, yet he believed implicitly all that his religion taught him. He had no doubt in the immortality of the soul, and he felt 
that he had conducted himself well enough according to his capacities to make it very likely that he would go to heaven. In his long career, to how many dying persons must he have administered the consolations of religion? Perhaps he was like the doctor who could get no benefit from his own prescriptions. Philip was puzzled and shocked by the eager cleaving to the earth. <clears throat> Excuse me. He wondered what nameless horror was at the back of the old man's mind. He would have liked to probe into his soul so that he might see in its nakedness the dreadful dismay of the unknown which he suspected. The fortnight passed quickly and Philip returned to London. He passed a sweltering August behind his screen in the costumes department, drawing in his shirt sleeves. The assistants in relays went for their holidays. In the evening, Philip generally went into Hyde Park and listened to the band. Growing more accustomed to his work, it tired him less, and his mind, recovering from its long stagnation, sought for fresh activity. His whole desire now was set on his uncle's death. He kept on dreaming the same dream. A telegram was handed to him one morning early, which announced the vicar's sudden demise, and freedom was in his grasp. When he awoke and found it was nothing but a dream, he was filled with sombre rage. He occupied himself, now that the event seemed likely to happen at any time, with elaborate plans for the future. In these he passed rapidly over the year, which he must spend before it was possible for him to be qualified and dwelt on the journey to Spain on which his heart was set. He read books about that country, which he borrowed from the free library, and already he knew from photographs exactly what each city looked like. He saw himself lingering in Cardova, on the bridge that spanned the Guadalquivir. He wandered through tortuous streets of Toledo and sat in churches where he wrung from El Greco the secret which he felt the mysterious painter held for him. Athelney entered into his humour, and on Sunday afternoons they made out elaborate itinerary so that Philip should miss nothing that was noteworthy. To cheat his impatience, Philip began to teach himself Spanish, and in the deserted sitting-room in Harrington Street he spent an hour every evening doing Spanish exercises and puzzling out with an English translation by his side the magnificent phrases of Don Quixote. Athelney gave him a lesson once a week, and Philip learned a few sentences to help him on his journey. Mrs. Athelney laughed at them. "'You two and your Spanish,' she said. "'Why don't you do something useful?' But Sally, who was growing up and was to put up her hair at Christmas, stood by sometimes and listened in her grave way, while her father and Philip exchanged remarks in a language she did not understand. She thought her father the most wonderful man who had ever existed, and she expressed her opinion of Philip only through her father's commendations. Father thinks a rare lot of your Uncle Philip, she remarked to her brothers and sisters. <coughs> Thorpe, the eldest boy, was old enough to go on to Arthusa and Athelney regaled his family with magnificent descriptions of the appearance the lad would make when he came back in uniform for his holidays. As soon as Sally was seventeen, she was to be apprenticed to a dressmaker. Athelney, in his rhetorical way, talked of the birds, strong enough to fly now, who were leaving the parental nest and with tears in his eyes told them that the nest would be there still if ever they wished to return. A shakedown and a dinner would always be theirs, and the heart of a father would never be closed to the troubles of his children. "'You do talk, Athelney,' said his wife. "'I don't know what trouble they're likely to get into so long as they're steady. So long as you're honest and not afraid of work, you'll never be out of a job, that's what I think, and I can tell you I shan't be sorry when I see the last of them earning their own living.' Childbearing, 
hard work and constant anxiety were beginning to tell on Mrs. Athelney, and sometimes her back ached in the evening so that she had to sit down and rest herself. Her ideal of happiness was to have a girl to do the rough work so that she need not herself get up before seven. Athelney waved his beautiful white hand. Ah, my Betty, we've deserved well of the state, you and I. We've reared nine healthy young children, and the boys shall serve their king, and the girls shall cook and sew, and in their turn breed healthy children. He turned to Sally, and to comfort her for the anticlimax of the contrast, added grandiloquently, they also serve who only stand and wait. Athelney had lately added socialism to the other contradictory theories he vehemently believed in, and he stated now, in a socialist state, we should be richly pensioned, you and I, Betty. Oh, don't talk to me about your socialists. I've got no patience with them, she cried. It only means that another lot of lazy loafers will make a good thing out of the working classes. My motto is, leave me alone. I don't want anyone interfering with me. I'll make the best of a bad job, and the devil take the hindmost. Do you call life a bad job, said Athelney. Never. We've put our ups and downs. We've had our ups and downs. We've had our struggles. We've always been poor. But it's been worth it, eh? Worth it a hundred times, I say, when I look around at my children. You do talk, Athelney, she said, looking at him, not with anger, but with scornful calm. You've had the pleasant part of the children. I've had the bearing of them, and the bearing with them. I don't say that I'm not fond of them, now they're there, but if I had my time over again, I'd remained single. Why, if I'd remained single, I might have a little shop by now and four or five hundred pounds in the bank, and a girl to do the rough work. Oh, I wouldn't go over my life again, not for something. Philip thought of the countless millions to whom life is no more than unending labour, neither beautiful nor ugly, but just to be accepted in the same spirit as one accepts the changes of the seasons. Fury seized him because it all seemed useless. He could not reconcile himself to the belief that life had no meaning, and yet everything he saw, all his thoughts added to the force of his conviction. But, though fury seized him, it was a joyful fury. Life was not so horrible if it was meaningless, and he faced it with a strange sense of power. Alright, there we go. Philip is still grappling with the meaninglessness of life, and hoping his uncle will cark it. Have your say about this chapter over at the subreddit. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.